Hello and welcome to the 10th series of the DNVGL Talks Energy Podcast. I'm your host, Matthias Steck. In this series, we take a fresh look at the role businesses play in lowering the world's carbon emissions and how they can work with governments, policymakers, and other key decision makers to transition faster to a clean energy future. We open this new series by taking a look at the big picture in terms of global emissions and how new AI tools can automatically use energy when it's at its cleanest. I speak to Gavin McCormick, founder of non-profit technology company WhatTime. He tells me how a hackathon event helped him discover the power of software and data to dramatically reduce global emissions. Gavin, who is a behavioral economist, also encouraged a shift in mindset from blaming energy producers and users for emissions to empowering them to make smarter choices. We hope you enjoy the episode. Gavin, to get us started, it would be great if you could briefly introduce what time and yourself. And what I would be especially interested in is, what is your personal motivation to engage in the energy transition? Sure. So I think um, something a little bit unusual about me is that I did not intend to found WattTime. Uh, my backstory is that I was a PhD student at UC Berkeley studying energy and behavioral economics. Uh, and my professor discovered a very interesting technique to measure uh, how much different wind farms reduce emissions. So it was not obvious to me that some wind farms, uh, if you build them, then what will happen is a coal plant will be replaced. And other wind farms, if you build them, what would happen is, for example, another wind farm would be replaced. So it's a very different impact on the environment. So I was working on a paper supporting this, and I lived in San Francisco. And uh, a colleague of mine said, you can't live in San Francisco and never attend a hackathon. So for fun, I showed up to a hackathon with a bunch of Facebook and Google software engineers and described the work I was doing. And they said, wait a minute, if you know which wind farms are most effective, we could write software that would make it possible to uh, deliberately use electricity at times and places that are better for the environment. You could know what time you should run your dishwasher or uh, use your air conditioner and it would be cleaner. And I thought this was a fun little hobby at first, uh, but what I watched is that having studied this topic for nine years, in nine hours we were able to write software that could scan power grids, find out this information and automatically inform devices at which times were better. And I was just so struck by the energy and enthusiasm of software engineers to volunteer to help with the energy transition, as opposed to the sometimes slow speed of academia. I got really hooked on the idea, can we move faster together to transition by getting software engineers more involved in the climate movement? Right. And I, I would like to dive a little deeper there because I watched a couple of your YouTube videos and you make a slightly controversial statement there at the first sight where you were saying, if I turn off my fridge or my light to save some energy, I'm not necessarily doing something useful to the environment. Can you explain that? Yeah, it's so surprising to me. I mean, I spent my whole life um, thinking about energy efficiency and conserving energy. Of course, that's the same thing as helping the environment. And what I'm seeing is that we now have so much renewable energy in parts of the grid. There are times when there's too much renewable energy on the power grid. And if you don't have enough energy storage to save it, it has to just get thrown away. So now uh, one third of the time in California, for example, we actually have more wind or solar power than the grid needs. 
And if you use energy at that exact moment, all that happens is they waste a little bit less wind or solar. So amazingly, that means if you conserve energy at that time, it actually doesn't do anything for the environment. You aren't reducing pollution. You're just having a little bit less wind thrown away. And that's becoming more and more common as we begin to succeed at the energy transition. And there's more and more renewables. Gavin, at what time you talk a lot about clean energy and dirty energy. Can you explain what you mean by these terms and why that matters? Yes, we use those terms very deliberately um, because one of the things we've learned is people can get very lost in minor disagreements about what type of energy is best. So for context, I'm a behavioral economist and I've spent a lot of time studying how do grid experts uh, take in new information and act. And one of the things we learned is it is so possible for two people who are both focused on the energy transition to get lost in an argument, is nuclear power a good thing or a bad thing? Is hydro environmentally friendly? Well, what about if it's a small hydro facility? And what we've learned is if you, instead of saying, I am going to define what is clean and tell you what to do, if you kind of flip it and say, what do you think is best? And what would you like to do about it? It makes people move to action much faster. And one reason I think that's very interesting to us is we've learned here in America, we've done a lot of studies and found that if you ask someone what clean energy means to them, and you make it clear that they will have a choice to do something about it, 99% of Americans say that what they would like is renewable energy. That's a very significant number because that is far more Americans than even believe in climate change. And so in a very politicized era where not everyone Uh, would agree to say that they care about the energy transition. What we're seeing is actually everybody agrees on doing something about the energy transition. If you just make it a little bit less about me telling you what I think and a little bit more about, okay, you tell me what you want to do and you mean that in an authentic way, actually many more people agree than is commonly known. Gavin, I'm aware that you developed the technology automated emissions reduction. Could you briefly explain what that actually is and what it does? Sure. The idea is if certain times now uh, using energy actually doesn't cause environmental harm, it would be really nice to use energy at those times. And I think it's not generally known how many devices on the power grid now have an internet connection. Uh, many people have heard of the internet of things and smart thermostats and electric vehicles, but probably um, are not aware of just how many there are now. So we now, I believe, just crossed 26 billion smart devices all over the world that have an internet connection and can be set to automatically use energy at certain times. So our idea automated emissions reduction is let's detect what are those moments where there's too much renewable energy? What are those devices that you can automatically set to use energy at certain times? And let's have them use energy at the cleanest times that um, are convenient instead of using random times. So my favorite example is a refrigerator. Okay, most people don't have a smart refrigerator yet, but they're becoming more and more common, and soon many people will have one. And most people don't care what time their refrigerator uses energy. They just care that their food is cold. And in fact, there's a lot of randomness in when a refrigerator turns on, turns off, is cooling. And uh, automated emissions reduction would say, why doesn't the refrigerator specifically cool at moments that uh, there's clean energy instead of just doing it at random? So if we look at the big picture in terms of the implementation of this technology you've talked about throughout a larger grid, what does it require for all refrigerators to know I have to use energy at this particular time? Does this create a new challenge? And what is needed to roll this out at energy ecosystem level? 
So what this looks like for a consumer level is just like when your phone automatically updates or your laptop automatically updates. It's becoming much more common that your car could automatically update or your thermostat could automatically update. But in order to do that successfully, you would need to have software that is scanning every power grid in the world every five minutes and detecting is right now a clean time or a dirty time. It would need a forecast of is the next five minutes going to be cleaner or dirtier. And you would need a way for that intelligence to get to the software companies. And even more importantly, perhaps, you would need every one of those software companies and the electric utilities and the regulators to understand how the whole system works. And so it's a surprisingly small project from a software perspective. But this is so different from how power grids have been run before that for the whole world to begin thinking this way, uh, there's a lot of uh, understanding that needs to happen in order for people to begin realizing that uh, increasingly certain times uh, are much cleaner than other times. And there is another aspect where I would like to drill a little deeper. Um, you said this way running a power grid would be very different from how we have done this in the past. I think there's also different ways how we look at emissions. You could say if there is a grid with 50% wind and 50% conventional, then the emissions are just some average out of that emissions the generation is emitting. But we have this concept of average emissions versus marginal emissions, and your technology makes use of this. Could you explain that in a bit more detail to us? Sure. So I would say in the past, who are the people that spent most time counting emissions? It was uh, carbon accounting companies and corporate sustainability teams. And their tools were primarily focused on uh, whose fault are the emissions. So there's a long history of averages being used as a way to decide if two companies live in a power grid and they each use half the electricity, whose fault is it that there are emissions? Uh, you could say, okay, let's cut it down the middle. If they both use half the electricity, then half the pollution belongs to this company and half the pollution belongs to that company. But that framework is very focused on blame. It's very focused on the idea of uh, it's important that we understand who is to blame for the pollution. And a very different way of looking at it is to say, how can we solve pollution? And if you look at it that way, you can instead say, okay, if this company takes this action, what will happen in the real world as a result? If they build a wind farm, if they install an energy efficiency program, if they uh, change electric vehicles, how is the world different in the real world? And that idea would be called marginal emissions. And it didn't used to be such a big deal, but now that we are starting to see bigger and bigger changes in power grids, now that we're seeing times, for example, that there's no pollution at all, knowing what's the real effect of doing something is becoming more and more important. And we call that marginal emissions. I would like to come to your background also as a behavioral economist. Um, we have the COVID-19 pandemic. We are in the middle of it. Consumption patterns have changed significantly in the corporate world, but also in the private world. Can you see any proof, if you use the concepts you have just uh, explained to us, uh, that there was, in fact, a real impact of COVID-19 on the electricity consumption patterns? Yes, very much so. So um, it's actually a, a wonderful uh, example of how marginal emissions work. So we, for example, in New York State in America, they're their own power grid. So we're monitoring what's going on with all their pollution and all their electricity use. We saw about a 7% drop in the electricity that people in New York State use from COVID 
Um, so that's great. A little bit more people working at home saved about 7% electricity. We saw about a 45% drop in the pollution. That's a huge difference. 7% drop in uh, use, 45% drop in pollution. And what we saw is it's because which are the power plants that turned off? It was the very dirtiest power plants of all that were the ones that actually were turned off when people began using a little less energy. And so we think that's not going to entirely last. A lot of patterns are likely to go back to normal. And to some extent, nobody can know for certain. But um, we are seeing clear evidence that some of the changes, for example, in transportation patterns uh, look like they're permanent. We're seeing uh, evidence in countries like China where transportation, uh, you know, the, the pandemic is practically over in China. And we are seeing that transportation patterns are not going totally back to normal. So we think some of the benefits of people using less electricity and energy are probably here to stay. Coming back to the energy transition and what technologies can do to this, um, you may be aware that DNVGL has also an energy transition outlook where we unfortunately come to the conclusion year after year that the carbon budget we have will be consumed much earlier than it should be. What do you think these new technologies which allow us a smart use of electricity, how much can they help to actually change the situation? I think they can have a really significant impact. And I keep coming back to what Al Gore once said about climate change progress. It always starts slower than you think, but when it really gets going, it always moves faster than you think. And I think we're going to see something similar here. So for example, in the first generation of automated emissions reduction algorithms, we got about a 1% reduction in pollution through software. That's nice, but it's not a big deal. On the latest generation of software in California, we saw a 100% reduction in pollution in energy storage. There was completely no carbon footprint from energy storage running this software. Now, we don't think it's all going to be 100% as of today, but I think that's a really good example of how the technology is just continuing to grow more powerful as we also have more and more renewable energy that is being wasted and you can use in this way. So we think it is possible to have about 300 million tons of CO2 per year reduced with this kind of technology and with related technologies like optimizing wind farms better with this technology. There's even potential for four gigatons of CO2 reduction per year. So for context, that's as much energy as, the Europe, as Europe uses in terms of emissions. So we think that over time, there's really significant potential. So if you would be a utility and you want to get that going, what would you need to do to, to get there and get there fast uh, with your clients? I think one of the things that we're pointing out here is that we're talking about clever uses of data. And so you need two pieces of the puzzle. First of all, you need the data. So you need to know, okay, which times are the cleaner times and where, uh, because it's very, it depends on the location. The other thing, though, is that you need help to understand what are the programs you can do with this. There's so many different things you can do with this data. One thing you could do is you could have a demand response program that instead of just paying attention to moments when uh, energy is very peak, it can also think about moments when energy is very dirty. And it's pretty easy if a utility really understands the data and has expert uh, guidance to change out a demand response program to get about 72 times more emission savings. Uh, another thing you can do is begin to optimize uh, electric vehicles and smart thermostat programs. And a third example would be redesigning energy efficiency programs to deliberately save more energy at times of day that are more important. So thinking about things like uh, if you retrofit a house and it is more energy efficient, well, does the house tend to use more energy in the morning or the night? These are important questions to know. 
So we think that the, the one-two punch for a utility is getting data from an organization like Wattime and then getting guidance on how to think about those data. And that's actually one reason we're so excited about the DNVGL partnership, uh, because we think that's a really good way for organizations to get guidance on, great, I have information, what do I do with it? Yeah, maybe you would tell us a little bit more about that, uh, the DNVGL partnership, and how you are exactly contributing there to what we try to do, uh, to give clients a better insight uh, also in their emission data. Sure. So one of the really interesting things about this partnership is that DNVGL just has so much expertise in so many pieces of the energy transition. So we often work with companies, for example, that specialize in electric vehicles. So that's great. We can clean up electric vehicles, but that's just one slice of a much, much bigger energy transition story. What we think is so interesting about DNVGL is people come uh, for everything from optimizing wind farms uh, to thinking about utility planning. There's a wide variety of different topics for which uh, DNVGL general expertise about energy paired with emissions expertise allows for sort of redesign of programs. And the reason I think redesign is so interesting is that uh, what I've learned as just a climate activist is it's really hard to start something from scratch. If you have an idea for building something entirely new, it's going to take years. But if you can find those opportunities where utilities, governments, companies have a program that with the right expertise from uh, people they're already trusting could be doing more impact faster with a slight tweak, we think that's how you can really accelerate the energy transition fast. So that's why we're really excited. Right. So, and I'm obviously excited as well here, and I wouldn't want to miss out to talk about another topic uh, where you are engaged, and this is the Google AI impact challenge uh, to measure carbon output from large power plants. Can you tell us a bit more about that project and what the impact of that may be? Sure. So uh, the connection is, if you think about how is it that we are able to know what are the times when renewable energy is being thrown out, it's because we need access to very, very high quality data on what's going on in power grids. Um, I didn't know this when I started this project, but the United States has far better open public data on power grids than anyone else in the world. And it's funny, we don't always think of America as the, the leader in environmental innovation these days, but back in the 1970s, the United States EPA created a system to monitor every fossil fuel power plant in the country every hour and provide the pollution and generation information to the public. And as a result, technologies like ours have been uh, possible. And when we went to go build this in other countries, what we discovered is there isn't the same quality of open monitoring. There's some countries that have some information, but it's not uh, a global system of that. So we partnered with a lot of other nonprofits who are interested in also um, accelerating the energy transition with a lot of data. For example, Carbon Tracker in the UK identifies what are coal plants that it would be just more profitable to just shut them down? They're just losing money. And they realized that they wished there was a system like the US EPA had in every country in the world, same as we did. So we applied to Google together as a group of nonprofits and said, um, what if we were able to apply artificial intelligence to satellite imagery of the entire world to look from space at what's going on in power plants and produce a global system to measure what's going on every power plant all day long, all over the world, and make that data available to the public so that technologies like ours would be possible, but also um, regulators could know what's going on in power grids. Um, the Paris Agreement negotiators could have a, a clear sense that their data have been validated externally. And a lot of different applications could just move a little faster 
because we had very high quality global monitoring of all power plants. Right. You just mentioned stakeholders uh, from the regulation side already. We have now an unparalleled insight into energy systems. What would you think the impact on how we are organized in the energy in industry could be? I'm thinking about now we have countries looking after their grids, maybe continents. Um, but you have just described would open up a much more global interconnection of the whole energy ecosystem. What would be your hunch how the future would look here like? I think that um, there's a lot of really interesting things going on about integrating the markets of trading electricity. And those have generally been ahead of integrating the environmental component of power grids. And I think what this project opens up is um, understanding, suppose that you are consuming power in Spain. Some of your power is coming from France. Some of your power is coming from Portugal. The more you understand about the environmental implications of making certain choices, the more you can begin to say, how do we not just build a few wind farms in Spain? How do we make sure that those wind farms have the maximum effect possible? And instead of just replacing and turning off wind farms in France, uh, they're turning off coal plants and helping us all move faster together. And we think this type of data is going to make it possible for grid operators and regulators to think about not what's the effect in my little town, but what is the effect I have on my neighbors and the effect they have on me? And how can we have a system that is optimized together to have even more benefit from uh, similar regulations. Gavin, you have just given us such a fantastic outlook and vision about what's happening in the future. Um, to get a bit more reality to this, what do you think will happen in the next 10 years? I think we've seen, even in the last five years, uh, particularly in the United States, um, just a very rapid move from what I would call the first phase of the energy transition to the second phase, which is really moving away from coal. So in the last five years, we've moved from power grids where about half the time you're getting coal energy if you flip on a light switch and about half the time you're getting natural gas to it's almost always natural gas and increasingly often it's renewables. We think in the next sort of five to 10 years, you're going to increasingly see a change that's already starting to happen in Europe uh, and maybe in California and the US to most of the time when you flip a light switch, you're actually turning on renewable energy. And we think that's very significant because it's going to mean that the energy transition changes from a story about let's just build more renewable energy to we actually have enough renewable energy. Now it's a question of optimization. It's a question of timing. And so I think 10 years from now, in most places in the world, it will be possible to have no carbon footprint at all if you are able to use software to have energy at exactly the right times. And I think that is a bigger change from how it works today than people have yet realized. I think it's all, we're, we're seeing that it's starting to move very fast. Thank you, Gavin, for this uh, great insights. Um, I have one final question to you coming back to DNVGL's Transition Faster Together campaign. Um, what would you think is the most impactful enabler for us to actually transition faster together to a clean energy future? I think the most impactful thing I've seen is to move away from thinking, uh, particularly in corporate sustainability and any organization that's setting their own sustainability goals, to move away from just thinking about how do I clean up my carbon footprint to how do I clean up Earth's carbon footprint and realizing that with better data now, there are many opportunities, for example, to build a wind farm, maybe not across the street uh, if you were in Sweden, but instead build it in Poland. If you have uh, a multinational company, for example, with that capability, 
often the same wind farm can be several times more emissions reducing in the real world. And there are these opportunities for big emission savings by just thinking a little bit less about my carbon footprint and a little bit more about my effect on Earth's carbon footprint. And we think there's a lot of low-hanging fruit to move very fast that way. Thank you very much, Kevin, for this great insights. Well, thank you so much for spending the time today. Uh, really exciting. And take care. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode. It was fascinating to hear about what times work and listen to Gavin's insights into the role of data in helping to redefine how we think about energy consumption. In next week's episode of DNVGL Talks Energy, we speak with Antonio Camasecra, head of the global infrastructure and networks business line at Enel. He'll discuss some of the megatrends in renewable energy as well as how investment in energy infrastructure will help drive the energy transition. To hear more podcasts in the series, please visit dnvgl.com slash talksenergy.